Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. Before we launch into our episode this week, I want to remind everyone that the O'Reilly Design Conference will take place March 19th through the 22nd, 2017 in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com forward slash design con for more information and to register. Now to our episode. This week, I sit down with Kat Holmes, Principal Design Director of Inclusive Design at Microsoft. We talk about the importance and differences between inclusive and universal design, recognizing bias, and the three lenses of inclusion. Enjoy the episode. Kat, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'd love for you to start off by talking a little bit about how you arrived at your current position as Director of Inclusive Design at Microsoft. Oh, it's a long story. <laughs> How far, far back do you want me to go? Um, I think, you know, it's not it's not an everyday position. There's a lot of companies that, um, you know, have directors of accessibility or they have um, accessibility-related programs. I think we're maybe one of the few to dedicate a team to inclusive design specifically. There's a handful of folks out there that are, but we are um, among a small group. And the, the path to inclusive design really started with a lot of work that I did on, on different products, different digital hardware, brand services. I've worked at Microsoft for eight and a half years and in that time touched a lot of different products. And along the way, one thing that I and, and many folks who work in design here as well um, have really strived for is to find a way to um, really connect what we do to the underlying meaningful purpose? Like, why do we make what we make? And um, as part of the the group, and I can talk a little bit later about you know, the team that we work with here, the broader team, but we really, um, what we called our, we called in the early days, our design agenda. You know, what's the, what's the thing that design is delivering to the business? What makes a designer a Microsoft designer? Really trying to get to the heart of that. And one of those things that we came across was inclusive design. That mission, that purpose, that ambition to design products for millions, if not billions of people, but at the same time to make something that's really personal and unique to each individual person. And so that tension between designing something that's universally available, yet personally meaningful, that was really the origin of inclusive design. It, we, we sought out whatever resources we could find. There's very few for the digital product space um, to really give guidance on how to practice inclusive design. So the more we saw, the more we learned, the more we looked, the more we saw the need to really build this as a expertise within our own walls and to share that as broadly as we can um, with the industry. And so we built a dedicated team, have the, the honor of um, leading that group and um, you know, having it be something that we can dedicate our time to fully has given us a chance to really accelerate and grow a position of leadership in that. That's awesome. So talk to me a little bit about what, what design looks like at Microsoft. So you have this team, um, you know, from an organizational level, are you, are there different design teams? Are you embedded in other, you know, in product teams? How does that work? Yeah. Um, it's always hard to draw a picture of <laughs> something as amorphous as an organization. So I, I tend to uh, prefer to talk about it more as the family of design that happens at Microsoft. If you were to take everyone who um, identifies as a designer or a design-related um, professional at Microsoft, we, we are one of the largest design organizations in the world. But at the same time, we operate as a family more so than as a a hierarchy or a, or a 
one central point of truth for all design at Microsoft. And part of that is because the diverse range of products that Microsoft creates. So we have teams located all around the world, but um, we also, more importantly, have people from a wide range of backgrounds, skills, expertise, people who are really challenging, you know, what is design? What's the future of design? We have lots of people who have come from the depths of graphic design, um, have really built interaction design fundamentals um, for decades. But at the same time, we have, you know, something like HoloLens, where hiring a designer who understands how to create holographic content um, is emerging in an entirely new discipline. And similar with inclusive design, where there's some elements we can borrow from things like interaction design, from graphic, from um, industrial design. But when it comes to really building um, professional expertise and a new skill, um, it's kind of a, a, a learning while doing practice. So there's a lot of that that happens in design at Microsoft. You know, we have a long history. When I came to Microsoft eight and a half years ago, there was already a strong design creative community. It's uh, evolved and it tends to come together in large groups for some businesses and then more dispersed teams for, for other businesses. It just depends on where the, where the company's headed. Great. Well, so talk to me about your job in particular. I'd love to hear a little bit about, and I'm sure there's no typical day, but, <laughs> but, but what yeah. a day might look like in, in your world. Oh, oh gosh. A <laughs> uh, day in my world. Uh, or just what your it, job entails, no, like what kinds no. of things you do. Yeah. It's a great self-reflective question. <laughs> um, so I would I would categorize most of my time and most of our team's time is is kind of divided between this this circle, this circle that goes between learning and applying and learning and applying. Um there are a lot of methods and practices that we've um, learned from people from other industries. And for inclusive design specifically, as I mentioned earlier, when we started this, there just weren't that many resources or educational resources on, on how to practice it, um, especially for digital products. There's a long history in, in physical environments and architecture, but when it comes to a computer interface, there was very little guidance. So a lot of that learning comes from, you know, uh, playground design, uh, which is a, actually a great example. We could talk about that a little bit later about, you know, the way that playgrounds are designed is actually a great analogy for thinking about operating systems and, and complex software. Um, we spend a lot of time with product groups across the company. We tend to work on specific areas or specific challenges or specific opportunities that a product is um, working on. We'll spend, I will spend, um, course of anywhere between three days to three months with a particular product team, diving into um, meeting with people with many different types of abilities and disabilities, understanding who currently is having a challenge using the product or is unable to use a product, understanding how to adapt and, and evolve our solutions to address and learn from uh, people who have had the biggest challenges using our product. So we focus on areas of um, particular tasks, particular goals within our products that people are trying to solve. And we find that the more constraint and kind of the sharper look we could take at something like, how do I change my settings to, um, you know, change the color profile of my, my computer interface? Or how do I um, make sure that Cortana knows the real important fundamentals about my home and my work and how to get from point A to point B. Really focus problems like that. We'll dive in, we'll do a real um, deep look with inclusive design. 
And then we zero it back out. We kind of zoom it back out to um, apply it to other areas where there's a similar goal or a similar task happening. So um, my day ends up, it's a, I have wonderful, I have such, such good days. <laughs> I, I try to avoid uh, email as much as possible. And when I do that successfully, they're great days because so much of that is about learning and practice. Um codifying the things that we know are working across a really broad set of challenges. But there's things that rise to the top and, and that we can say, hey, you know, this is a, a practice or a method that's worked in multiple places. Let's share this with as many people as possible. And being able to do that combination of practitioner and then student and educator is a really rewarding week. That's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when um, when you're looking to hire designers, what kinds of folks are you looking for? Oh, there's, well, broadly across Microsoft, I'll just say, there are so many different types of design challenges that we're working on. One of the things that consistently is true um, is people who are looking to take on some of the biggest challenges um, facing our society. I mean, there's, there's a lot that comes across the plate of our designers at, at Microsoft. And people who can meet those those challenges with, you know, an open sense of collaboration, partnership, um, but also being able to to see a very human-led approach to those problems. So really being able to spend time with, whether it's customers or, um, uh, you know, even just observing um, people in environments. Not everybody needs to be a full-on researcher, but you do have to have the powers of observation. You have to have the power of human insight to some degree, or at least be able to develop that. And then being able to translate that into solutions that really, as I said earlier, kind of address a sharp pointed challenge that a person is having. Um, so that's, you know, broader across Microsoft. It's a pretty wide um, statement. There's a lot of specialized skills inside of there. Um, when it comes to inclusive design, one of the things that's most important is being able to think about um, broader systems, thinking about Things that are interconnected, that you know, you change one thing at this end of the operating system, what are the downstream consequences and impacts of that? Because there's such a, I guess, needs to be a heightened awareness of what kind of obstacles are being either raised or lowered with every design decision that we make. Um, so I, I look at, you know, as an inclusive designer or inclusive designers need to be thinking about that barrier specifically and help illuminate that for our partners across all product teams that, you know, are really driving quickly, but may not always see every consequence or obstacle that comes and goes. You know, another very important skill for a designer in this space is being able to build bridges across disciplines. And, you know, to your question earlier about what does design look like at Microsoft, one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of and why I love working here is there's a, a strong emphasis on designing as an act, as a verb, as something that happens only when you have multiple disciplines in one space. There's designing mm. as a way of working as unique and distinct from a designer with specific skills and a specific set of responsibilities. And so in a, a job here, um, when I hire, when we hire, looking for somebody who understands that kind of bridge building that's required to bring people into understanding what the design mindset, the design application, um, thinking, uh, you know, ways of reframing and, and looking newly at maybe very traditional uh, problems or systems. So that ability to 
build a bridge and help other people see as well how that designing journey and process can lead to a better result together Mm. is an incredibly important skill. That's a really interesting observation, designing as a verb. Yes. Um, yeah. It's, it's so I should have probably started off here, but uh, I'll ask it now. <laughs> Let's um, do it. Um, you know, I'd love for you to define how how you look at the term inclusive design. You know, you hear a lot about diversity. Right. But yes. so, so talk to me about the, the nuances and, and how you define it there at Microsoft. Oh, such a good such a good question. And I would say it's it's um, in development. Yeah. I, I would say that there's lots. If you were to search for, you know, information, background, history on inclusive design, there's so much. I'm I'm amazed and I'm constantly learning at all the elements that go into the history, the uh, disability rights movements, uh, independent living movement, the long standing work that's happened in accessibility and advocacy. Uh, there's a lot also in thinking about uh, social inclusion. So, you know, there's there's no one definitive Mm-hmm. answer. But the way that we've come to define it at Microsoft is um, thinking about it as a method, focusing on the how we design, um, maybe even before we talk about what it is. So inclusive design being um, how, a method, and that it's really born out of adaptive environments, which to us means digital environments, um, you know, systems and, and environments that can adapt to an individual human being. There's a lot of, um, I think, precedent even just in the ACE to study orthopedic biomechanics and prosthetics, and really the science behind creating adaptive um, solutions that fit an individual mm-hmm. um, for, com- for comfort, for health, for, you know, usefulness. Um, there's, a, there's a depth there. So it's a method born out of those adaptive digital environments, um, but it considers the full range of human diversity. And most importantly, it means including people in the design process who have a diverse set of experiences, but maybe even more importantly, have for a long time been excluded from participating in particular experiences. Um, and thinking about who's been excluded is is one of the things we find really helps unlock much sharper and I think stronger ideas around inclusive design. So thinking about it as a method, it's, it's about including people um, and that full range of human diversity. And to exactly to your point, there's a lot of conversation about diversity right now. But one of the underlying pieces within inclusive design, and it's just really reshaped how I've thought about diversity. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up in Oakland, went to school at Cal and Berkeley. And there, there was a lot of exposure to diversity. Like diversity was a conversation we were always having as a kid growing up. Um, but everything I've learned about inclusive design has transformed how I think about that. And the major shift for me has been moving away from a purely demographic definition of, of diversity. For a long time, diversity has been quantified in terms of gender or the language we speak or the age that we are. Um, but a lot of those categories and typification has come from something that had more to do with maybe a marketing strategy mm. or a product strategy or a business strategy than it really had to do with human behavior or human interaction. And so that shift that for me has been so important is thinking less about demographic and more about human interaction, diversity of human interaction. Um, And all of us are now interacting with technology in a dozen different ways, Um, at least in, especially along the uh, 
United States West Coast. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the problem. But there's there's so many different ways that we interact with technology, um, you know, in public environments and private environments. So that diversity itself, um, you know, now rise of voice based interactions, the mm. rise of uh, gestural and um, uh, tactile interactions. The the thing at the underpinning for inclusive design is that there's people who've been interacting with technology purely through voice for a long time or purely through the use of light um, for a long time. And by spending time with someone who has for their for for decades used only voice-based interaction to do coding at their company, mm. you will learn so much about the importance and the efficiency and not just the conversational aspects of voice-based user interface design, but really the importance of the hierarchy, the the way that navigation happens. So at the heart of it, it's a, a long answer to your short question that it's really about reshaping how we think about diversity and thinking about the strengths that lie in the conversations you can have with people who've been interacting with technology in many, many um, diverse ways for a long time. Wow. Great answer. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what motivated you to uh, to get into this space? Was it growing up, or talk to me about that? Uh, you know, so this is actually a question I've been reflecting on because I <laughs> I um, <laughs> I do I truly feel like I've found the work that I'll be doing for the rest of my life, and whatever role that I'm in, this will always be part of what I do and who I am. The thing that the best I can articulate right now is. You know, it it was a nice intersection. It was a, a well timed intersection of a lot of things happening, both in you know the transformation of digital technology that we are all moving into these more ambient kind of interactions with computers, um, but that the more we can do with technology, it drives this question for me of why should we do this? <laughs> why? Like, which human being is this? Does this matter to? And there's nothing sharper for me than um, than spending time with someone who literally was unable to perform a role at work or um, like a barrier, you know, unable to purchase food in a, a cafeteria because suddenly, you know, a design team or a um, product team decided to put a touch screen in place of a payment system where there was always a human being. And so when you see these places in our environment just becoming I've been coming hyper aware of, um, you know, what happens when um, someone is fully unable to participate as, you know, an independent, uh, self-determining human being when we put a touch screen into an environment but didn't provide any way for someone who with, has low vision to use that um, payment system or to buy a ticket to the to the metro. Like the real sharp sense of responsibility that comes in with that for me has has been uh, know, core shaking, really getting that quickly. And there's there's no moment in my um, you know childhood per se that was um, like a, a like I knew this is what I was gonna be doing for for uh, for my career, but th- it really does come down to um, knowing what kind of problems are worth solving mm-hmm. and knowing what kind of problems are worth averting and avoiding and no longer perpetuating. And mm-hmm. so I think it's just it's resonated with me on that level where there's some very tangible, tangible things to go solve. Excellent. Meaningful work. That's that's an important piece for many people. So, you know, some people would argue that by designing for everyone, no one's satisfied. But you, in fact, feel just the opposite. 
I believe anyway, in that, you know, by designing for inclusion, you create better experiences for everyone. Talk to me a little bit about about that. Ooh, that's a great, a great call out. I want to talk about that one. Yeah. Designing for everyone. No one is satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) It's um, one of the best and most common questions that uh, we get as we, we do inclusive design. There's an important distinction, I believe, to draw between universal design and inclusive design. Um, Universal design in a nutshell could be summed up as one size fits all. Mm. You know, it's taking a solution and finding many, many ways to adapt or ways to accommodate or add to, to make that work for as many people as possible. We think of the curb cut certainly as a great access mm-hmm. enhancement, but it also, you have to think about the, the texture that's on the surface of the curb to make it distinguishable for people with low vision or who are blind, because curb cuts pose quite a serious uh, safety risk for people who are unable to see them or notice the transition into the street. Uh, there's, you know, the chirping of the streetlights that also mm-hmm. indicate when it's safe. There's a lot around that, trying to make that one curb cut, which increased access, safe and also accessible for a lot more people. And so when I think of universal design, it is an incredibly important, long history practice, especially in the built environment, but it is distinct from inclusive design. So inclusive design, in comparison, we'd consider one size fits one. Mm. And the one size fits one idea is really about how you adapt something that is plastic, that is flexible, that is malleable and adaptive to fit not just an individual person's abilities, but their context, their motivations for for whatever they're trying to complete in that moment. And that's, again, one of my favorite examples is um, Playgrounds mm-hmm. um, and uh, worked with Susan Goldsman from MIG Consulting in San Francisco last year. She I believe she passed away this year. And um, one of the most important things they learned from Susan was that inclusive design is about creating a diversity of ways for people to participate in an experience so that they have a sense of belonging in that place. And when you think about a playground and you, you can kind of look and observe and say, what's this playground really great at? Is this all about digging? Is it about <laughs> climbing? Is it about swinging? But then look at how many different ways a truly inclusive playground will give people or children of all ages, sizes, abilities, how many different ways it gives them to participate in that experience of digging or of climbing. Can, can you reach the highest point in the playground, both by climbing the rope and on a graded path that is accessible to a child using a wheelchair? And so that diversity of ways to participate really depends on understanding what you're great at. And that distinction I think in there makes it possible to find things that give people a, a way of participating with equity, with dignity, but it's not about that one solution having to be modified so that every possible contingency of human ability is considered. It's thinking about multiple ways that people will come into that environment and how they will use that space. Mm. Is that what is that what you're referencing when I think it was in um, an article I had read? Designing for inclusion starts by recognizing exclusion. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's a really, really great question because you know designing for inclusion starts with recognizing exclusion. We were looking for what's that very first starting point? Where's that step that all of us, anyone, is most likely to kind of blow past if we don't take a moment 
to stop and recognize. There's a lot of conversation about bias um, happening in our industry right now, which I think is amazing and, and important. And one of the, I think, most fundamental types of biases is, are we designing something that we ourselves can see? Are we designing something that we ourselves can hear or reach with our hands? And one of those most fundamental biases is using our own abilities to design products for other people. And most of that design, at least in the years that I've worked in the industry, happens at a desk in an office, a certain type of lighting, certain type of um, environment, maybe not too loud, kind of quiet, um, or you know, uh, a team that, for the most part, has pretty similar levels of, of vision or mobility. And it is a real important thing to step back and think about not just how would this work for someone who is blind or has low vision, or how would this work for someone who doesn't have use of both of their arms, but to think about how will this experience be used in a noisy, crowded bus or in a um, quiet uh, library Mm. or a, um, you know, a classroom with students with many different learning styles. And those kind of biases really take a moment, I find, we find with our with our teams to just really sit and think about it for a moment and then recognize who might be most excluded from using that experience, um, who might have the greatest obstacles when using that product. So we step back, we think about exclusion kind of through, I'd say, three lenses of inclusion. Uh, first line would be physical ability. You know, is there some um, something in terms of how we see, hear, touch, move that um, somebody would experience a, a barrier? Um, second one is cognitive, which there's a lot to explore and learn there. But, you know, have we made the the learning process for this new feature work for people with different learning styles or Mm. is it all optimized towards uh, one learning style and so that's cognitive and then the third one is social inclusion and you know where in the world is this product being used and it's not just about language translation but it's about cultural um, understanding the design of cortana is a great example when we started Shipping Cortana around when Cortana started to be available in many parts of the world. Um, you know, how Cortana tells a joke mm-hmm. in uh, one country is very different than in another. So those kind of social considerations of inclusion as well. So taking a moment to really recognize, okay, back to, you know, that playground example. If this, what does this product need to be great at? If it needs to be great at creating a written story together or connecting on a phone call, you know, what are the different ways that people will need physical and cognitive and, and social consideration to make that work for, for them? And um, sometimes it's as simple as providing a, a, an accessibility solution, but more often we find there's ways to give people choice between voice versus written versus mm-hmm. uh, visual that really helps not only make the experience more inclusive, but helps make better use of how human beings truly interact in the world, which is multifaceted. Mm, boy, you have to keep a wide open mind. Um, yes. Which is a good thing. I mean, and, and continue to to test uh, your assumptions about everything. Yes. And I will say one of the most important things is there is no perfect mm. solution. There is no 100%. And so, you know, understanding 
that trade-off, understanding where to make those trade-offs, and then also understanding what different kind of combination of solutions can come together to create participation, that it's not entirely about making one thing, as we mentioned earlier, for universal design. It's not about making that one thing work for every possible contingency, but it's about how many different things can come together to make sure that anybody can participate in this experience. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Great. Um, so just a couple quick um, final questions. Beyond your own work, what people or projects are, are grabbing your attention? Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. There's the thing, the kind of projects I really am drawn to are the ones that are reshaping how we think about these really entrenched things that we take for granted in our society. Things that are like perhaps the most mundane, every kind of systems, our financial systems, our uh, legal systems, our, um, you know, the ways that we interact in public environments. Um, Some of the projects have come to mind. You know, one is, I just love so much of the work that's coming out of OCAD University in Toronto. So that's Ontario College of Arts and Design Mm -hmm. in Toronto. They have one of the few master's design programs, a master's in design programs for inclusive design. Hmm. They also have a huge, like, I just, I I just follow whatever I can on what they're doing because they also really thinking about, you know, how can we bring more diversity to how we teach design and education? Um, You know, how can we examine the, the roots, really, you know, the cultural roots of design and think about, or really to create better ways to include diverse cultural perspectives on design. A lot of what we do is is based on very Eurocentric or Asian-centric um, design approaches. So I just, I love how they are constantly testing and pushing how we think about design. Another, I've been following the work of the Digital Defense Service, um, hmm. the United States government. I know it's not, not what you would expect, <laughs> but uh, again, it's the like, hmm, what's going on over there? I had this opportunity to visit um, the Pentagon, when I was in D.C. recently, and they have a small team there working on design within what they call Digital Defense Service. And um, they find these amazing, challenging, difficult problems to go solve within things like, you know, veteran affairs. Um, you know, how, do, how do people access healthcare through veteran affairs? And a lot of that sometimes comes down to the design of the website or the interaction that people have with the service. So, People tackling these really important yet challenging um, design spaces. NASA JPL has a, a growing design team as well. Um, you know, thinking about the human being and the human connection to space exploration, but also climate and earth sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love the work that they're doing. And then there's you know whole slew of, of startups around hiring, Coru, Unitive. Um, you know, rethinking the way that we um, not just change the language of job descriptions, but how we really look past that, you know, back to that point on demographic diversity. How do we think about other uh, types of behavior or interests and what makes somebody successful in a culture and using those as a basis for hiring practices? Um, so those are top of my my radar right now. Um, and it has to do a large part with, you know, what I am learning and learning every day about accessibility, that it's just an area of design that is rich with opportunity to do some really fantastic work. And it's been undervalued for a long, long time. So this, for me, that's an exciting combination. We can find spaces like that. That's great. That's great. Some interesting organizations I hadn't even heard of. So thank you for sharing that. I love, 
I love asking that question because it always turns me on to new yeah, um, yeah, it's great. New ideas. Uh, one final question. It's kind of a fun one. I hope it's a fun yeah. one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when when you're not at Microsoft, how do you refuel? Oh gosh, I um, you know I have I have this balance of introvert and extrovert time. <laughs> <laughs> Lately, you know, I've had such uh, I've really enjoyed the opportunities we've had to to talk about inclusive design to. Um, again, focus on education and learning, and um, but it requires a lot of external uh, energy in my my daily work. Uh, so in my my refueling time, it tends to be very unglamorous things like <laughs> cooking um, different kinds of puff pastry or tortillas, or um, you know, I've I've been ex- I, I experimented with a bunch of different um, types of food, and I, I'm I'm a food fanatic. My family benefits from that. Um, so I, my creative outlet outside of, of work here is really shopping for food, um, trying new cuisines, <laughs> cooking and eating. So that's that's basically what I did for the entire holiday. Um, for any holiday I get, it's all built around trying new foods, creating <laughs> new, new experiences, and sometimes cuddling up with a, a fireplace book and a blanket. Nice. Sounds good to me. Well, Kat, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is a great, great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can reach Kat on Twitter at Kat Holmes. You can subscribe to the Design Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn. And while you're there, leave us a review. (laughs) 